chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Tim started 1 Thessalonians last week, and then he skipped town. It says, Michael, don't cover Thessalonians. I said, don't worry. So I said, what do you want me to preach? Is there something you just want me to hit them with? He said, no, whatever the Spirit leads. So you get what's been bothering me and the Spirit for a while, right? No, I was like, I was like, what do I preach on? I'm like, okay. So I'm like, I did one topic, and I'm like, that doesn't quite fit. So, but where do you go for inspiration when you need a sermon? You just kind of get the overflow, right? So I go to church signs. Got some church signs? Are they up here? There we go. Y'all may not read it because of the glare. When I went to look, this is the first Baptist church in America. And the sign reads, a, sh a sheep, a snake, and a drum fell off a cliff. But a Huh? You know, like a little drum thing? But a Yeah. So here's what I learned about this sign, just for the record. The first Baptist church in America hasn't lost their sense of humor. Okay? My favorite part of this sign is at the bottom. You can't read it, but it says, This church uh, gathered by Roger Williams in A.D. 1638. They put the A.D. in there just so you knew it wasn't B.C. <laughs> I thought that was impressive. They were thinking ahead. Just in case someone said, did it go all the way back to 16 B.C.? No, it's A.D. B.C. So let's go to another sign. I was looking around. Uh, this Presbyterian church, if, if you're praying for snow, please stop. I said, you know what? That doesn't apply to us here, right? That doesn't apply. So I said, that's not going to work. Let's think of another topic. This one's more relative to us. With all this rain, we need an ark. Fear not. Wait for it. We know a guy. <laughs> now, just in case you were missing Tim, that's his joke. <laughs> we hear that at staff meeting every now and then, okay? With all the rain, I thought that was good, but I said, maybe that's just too close to home for us this week. So uh, this one, social distance. Social distancing does not apply to God. Draw near to Him. I was thinking that may have been a better sermon for last year. So we passed that one up, okay? And then uh, this one coming from the Catholic Church, too hot to keep changing sign, sin bad, Jesus good, details inside. That's more of a July sermon. So we're not doing that one today either. Good news, right? And then this one, Central Baptist, thank you. Forgive your enemies. It messes with their heads. Now, as true as that may be, I think that's a little out of context, and I, I didn't want to go that route today, okay? So I, I settled on this one for today. Sin knocks a hole in your bucket of joy. So if you have your Bible, Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to go, and I'm going to read the last couple of verses of Philippians and uh, pick up the first couple of verses of Philippians 2. Now, why Philippians? It's because I've been leading a men's Bible study, and and we're covering Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So we're not covering that, but this is kind of the prequel to it uh, in a spiritual formation class that I had last, uh, last month. It said, take a scripture and just read it for the whole month. So this is what I've been reading for the whole, for the whole month of April so far. Okay? But, uh, so this is kind of the overflow of my own personal life of what we've been doing. So Philippians 1, chapter 1, verse 27. I'm going to read all the way through 2, verse 4. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. 
This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And as we read our scripture, please join me in prayer. Father God, I do thank you for today. I pray and ask that you open your scripture to us and just open our hearts to hear your message. Not my words, Father, but your words. All that we do, Father, we lift you up. In your name we pray and ask it. Amen. As we begin our passage, it says, walk worthy of the gospel. Walk worthy of the gospel. Is the church walking worthy? Of the gospel. Are you walking worthy of the gospel? Now, when you read the word you in this Philippians passage, you is plural. So when it says, Are you working worthy? it's talking about the church in general. So the question is, Woodland Park, are we walking worthy of the gospel? It can also be translated this way only behave as citizens of the gospel of Christ. Only behave as citizens of the gospel of Christ. But for us as a church to walk worthy of it, are you doing your part? Because it comes down to the individual as, as well. As we talk about the whole church, and is the whole church walking worthy? If you're not doing your part, you're harming the church. So are you individually walking worthy of the gospel? Because see, a lot of times as we look at it, we find that some people like to ride coattails. Now, I'm not calling names. Sometimes I'm the one riding coattails. But there's two things about riding people's coattails when you come to church is that one, eventually, they get tired of dragging you on their coattails. And the second part is, coattails get dirty after a while. Because if you're not doing your part, then you may be dragging some others down with you. So where are we at? Are we worthy of walking according to the gospel? Are we walking worthy? Are we acting and behaving as citizens of the gospel of Christ? Paul's writing from an unexpected place in Philipp, in, in, uh, when he writes to the church of Philippi. He's in prison. Now, he's probably in Rome as you look through it. There's several places they say, well, he's either in prison here, here, or wherever, or in transport. But probably where he is, he's in Rome. So Paul comes across a little bit, if you read it just at first glance, maybe a hypocrite. Paul, you're saying walk, walk, walk worthy of the gospel, and yet you find yourself in jail. But we can't go that route because Paul is in jail because of the gospel of Christ. Because in his nation, in the nation of Rome that he lives in, he sat there and he preached the gospel, and they said, we don't like what you're saying, Paul. Go to prison. So he's actually living out what he's telling the church of Philippi to do. His heavenly citizenship is more important than his earthly citizenship. So today as we talk, today's good news is the gospel lived out daily in your life. 
Is the gospel lived out daily in your life? Because it should be and it should always be lived out daily in our life. So how do we walk according to the gospel? How do we walk? First off, if you look in verse 27, it says, Be unified in the gospel. We need to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So when Paul writes, he says, Stand firm in one spirit, in one mind. If you read through Philippians 1 and 2, there's a lot of times where he's saying one mind, one spirit, one this, one that, because he desires for the church to be unified in what it does. Stand firm. Two guys were riding a tandem bike. You ever ridden a tandem bike? You know, the, the one where two people ride on it. I've done that before. It's hard. <laughs> I've done it once. Not looking forward to doing it again. But two men were riding a tandem bike, and they go up this steep hill, and they pedal hard, 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 and they get to the top, and first guy gets, when the guy gets to the top, the first guy says, whoop, that was hard. The second guy looks at him and goes, yeah, it was hard. Luckily, I had the brake on the whole time, so we didn't fall backwards. <laughs> and sometimes when we come to church, that's maybe how it feels. We're trying to move forward, but someone's holding the brake. We're trying to go this direction. Someone's holding the brake. We try to go many directions. But we need to be striving together, unified for the gospel. We had a definition that we gave at the beginning of the year about what a disciple is. A growing disciple joyfully embraces the patterns, priorities, and the purpose of Jesus. A growing disciple joyfully embraces. Now, when we were creating this definition, the one word that had to stick, the one word that Pastor Tim said, it has to be in there was the word joyful. He said, because a lot of times we can do it begrudgingly. We can hold the break. But we are called to be joyful disciples. The gospel is, the gospel is that Jesus proved he was the Messiah by his words, his deeds, and his death. Not just his death. And sometimes we love, I don't want to say overemphasize his death, but sometimes we, we talk about his death. But you got to realize, it's about all of Jesus. It's about what he said. Because if he didn't say it, or if he admitted it, omitted it, then we don't have a complete Jesus. If he didn't do all the deeds that he was supposed to do, if he skipped out on some of the miracles and just came in one day and said, hey, I died on the cross, came back to life. I mean, if no one saw the miracles, then it takes away from who Jesus is. So when we talk about the gospel, the gospel is the good news of Jesus, and it's about everything about Jesus. Before the cross, on the cross, after the cross, even today, and even in the future. But sometimes when we think about the gospel, we think of a certain prayer we have to say. There's a prayer, and yes, there's a time in your life where you need to make a decision for Christ. There's a time in your life where you need to cross that line and say, I am a believer of Christ. But sometimes we get caught up in the semantics. Well, did you say the right words? Did you say the right prayer? So I wrote a prayer, just in case you were wondering, because I think sometimes we, we don't want to leave anything out, right? So when we start a prayer about the gospel, Father, Jesus, and Holy Spirit, I didn't want to leave any of the Trinity out, so I added them all in, okay? Father Jesus, Holy Spirit, I know that I have sinned. I know that I haven't sinned, iniquity, trespasses, blemishes, imperfections, wickedness, and I have fallen short of the glory of God. I repent, ask forgiveness, and turn from sins. 
I need you to save, rescue, redeem, atone, and forgive me. I ask Jesus to come into my life, justify me, make me righteous, holy, change me, and to be my Savior, Lord, Counselor, Helper, and Friend. In Jesus' name, amen. But see, all those words mean salvation. All those words, and we think those words got to be put in the right order. We think those words. But what does Jesus do when people come to him? When friends brought their, their, uh, their friend that could not walk and tore open the roof and lowered him down. The man didn't sit there and confess his sins to Jesus. He, they, Jesus knew his heart. He said, your sins are forgiven, rise and walk. Your sins are forgiven, rise and walk. When Peter was coming out to Jesus on the water and began to sink, and he said, Lord, save me. Jesus didn't look at him and go, I mean, you got to confess that you took your eyes off of me first, Peter. <laughs> what did he do? No, he reached down quick. Lord, save me. And Jesus says, I am right here. When he tells a parable about the prodigal son, and the prodigal son comes home. Now, I know it's a parable, but when the prodigal son comes home, he has his speech rehearsed. Father, I know I've sinned against you. I just, I'm only worthy to be a servant in your house. I don't need to come back to your son. I just want to come back. The father does not let him get the speech out of his mouth. It says that the father sees him coming from a long ways off and runs to him and grabs him and hugs him. And just as the son's trying to give his speech, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So it's not just some prayer that has to be recited or some prayer that needs to be said. It's always about the attitude of your heart. Amen. It's always about the attitude of your heart. And I hope that we can agree on that, that it's about the attitude of our heart because when we do that we stand firm we strive together side by side because the opponents of the gospel shouldn't be within this room the opponents of the gospel are out there now here's the tricky part about the opponents that are out there about out in the world and are we reaching our community is that our job is not to go and defeat the opponents our job is to go Tell them why they want to be on our team. That is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do you want to be on our team? Let me tell you about who our head coach is. Let me tell you about who the owner of our team is. His name is Jesus, and you need him. But Paul mentions that there are really two types of opponents out there, ones that we need to talk to and share, ones that we talk to, they're going to respond two different ways. One is... They'll join our team. Great. Or they'll stay opponents of who we are. But our mission doesn't change the same. Paul mentioned very clearly in verse 29 to be ready for both type of opponents. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul said be ready because you don't, when you're sharing the gospel, you don't know which response you're getting from that opponent. Are they going to come to your team? Are they going to be against you? But be ready. Go and show that we are united in the gospel. And that's why you should be united in the good news of Jesus, but also be united in love. Church, are we united in love? Chapter 2 it talks about if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, 
Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There's that unity again. Same mind, same love, being of full accord. Be of one mind. We need to be unified in love. As we only have, as we only behave as citizens of the gospel of Christ, are we unified in the gospel? Are we unified in love? That covers our vertical relationship with God. Are we unified in what we believe about God, about who Jesus is, about the gospel? Are we unified in how we relate to other people? Are we unified in how we treat each other in these rooms? When we're unified, we encourage, we comfort, we join the Holy Spirit, we show affection, we give sympathy when people need it. Think over your last week. Would you define your week as one of encouraging, comforting, affectionate, sympathetic to others? Or would you look at your week and think of it more as a grumbling session? Angry, complaining, were you pouty this week? That's been my week. That's why I say you get the overflow of what God deals with my life, right? Man, we need to be unified in love. We don't need to sit there and have pity parties and pout about ourselves as we go forward, but we need to be unified and we need to be showing encouragement, comfort, show where the Spirit's moving in our life, be affectionate, be sympathetic. We're unified in love, which means we need to act more like Christ and how he loved people. On his way to the cross, the week before, Jesus is marching down to Jerusalem. He encounters ten lepers and heals them. He comes across the children that the disciples are holding back, and he says, no, let them come to me, and he blesses them. He runs into this guy named Zacchaeus, and if you're in Explore the Bible, that was Sunday school lesson last week. Runs into a guy named Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, come here. We need to have a conversation. And he talks to a tax collector. thing you need to know about tax collectors are, they're their whole sin, another sin category, right? Tax collectors, it always says there's tax collectors and sinners. I mean, they're a whole other breed. Tax collectors in Roman day were traitors to Jews because Zacchaeus was a Jewish person. Matthew was a Jewish person that worked for Rome. They worked for the other team. And the rest of the Jews are like, man, it's bad enough we got the Gentiles to deal with. Now we got those that are ours that are going over to the other side to collect their taxes. But Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I need to go to your house. We need to talk because God has plans for you. And in the midst of that, and in other stories that we see from Jesus, the woman caught in adultery. How does Jesus handle that? How does he love her? What about... Uh, Oh, the crowd, when he goes to the feeding of the 5,000, he gets out of the boat and it says they looked like they were sheep without a shepherd and he ministered to them and he fed them. What about Peter? In Jesus' biggest crisis that he has, he's going to the cross, he's about to be beaten and he hears Peter, his leader. I don't know this man. I don't know this man. I've never seen this man before in my life. How does Jesus respond to Peter? 
It's easy to say, sorry, Peter, you messed up, you're out. But he loves Peter. Our citizenship in the gospel brings all walks of life together. Let's talk about Peter just for a little bit more. Peter's an impulsive person. He's what I always say. He has the, uh, what is it, the shoe and mouth disease. He speaks and really shouldn't have. He talks a lot and should have just bit his tongue. But you got Peter like that. Other disciples, John and James. We love John and James. Matter of fact, in the book of John, he always talks about the, the disciple that Jesus loved. Their nickname, Sons of Thunder. I'm going to tell you this. You're not born with that name. You earn that name. I mean, that's like, here these two guys walk up and their nicknames, hey, that's John and James. They're known as the Sons of Thunder, which means they can fight. They're going to be rebel rousers, right? But let's look at some of the other disciples. You got Simon, who's a zealot. The zealots were the other side. They were ready to throw Rome out and create their own country. And then you got Matthew, the tax collector. Remember that guy over there? Imagine those campfire conversations. <laughs> Simon on one side and the tax collector on the other. Matthew lived with money all his life, but he was not in charge of the money of the ministry. Judas was. Judas held the money bag. But what we see is you got Thomas the doubter, or as I call him, the logical one. He likes to process things. I mean, imagine Jesus every night sitting around campfires, talking to Peter, talking to James and John, talking to Simon the zealot, Matthew the tax collector, talking to Judas. And he tells every story to everyone, knowing what's going to happen. Jesus loved them equally, including the one that betrayed him. He loved them equally, and we need to be united in love. Lastly, we need to be united in humility. In humility. Verse 3 of chapter 2 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, everyone naturally looks to themselves. When we're doing an event, what do I get out of it? Is there food going to be there? I mean, that's really what you're saying. We may cover it up and disguise it. We just want to, hey, are you at least going to feed me if I show up to this thing? But... What do I get out of it? Is it worth giving up my time to come to it? Here's the fact about church. And I'm going to say this very delicately. Church is not about you. It's not about you. Now, it's not about me either. Church is about the gospel. Church is about Jesus. Church is about us loving one another. Church is about us being humble in front of one another. So I know we all have preferences about styles of worship, decor, Sunday school rooms. Trust me, I know you like your Sunday school room. I would not try to switch you out of your Sunday school room unless it was absolutely possible. Unless I just needed it for something else. Right? But I know that's sacred holy ground. I also know that we have preferences about when things start and when things end. And trust me, the 11 o'clock service wants me to end on time because there's food afterwards. I know that, okay? I know we have preferences when we show up. But when we realize that it's not about us, when we realize that it's not about what I want or what I need when I come to church, but it's about who he is, that opens up the door for us to do ministry. Our eyes are focused on other people's needs and not our own. 
We see where we can serve. We see where we can minister. We see where God is moving and we join in. Because when we're unified in humility, there's room for the things of God to get accomplished. So let me ask this question. Grandparents, would you be willing to switch services just to go with your grandkids to church and to make sure they were here? Now, grandkids, young adults, youth, would you be willing to switch services just to go to church with your grandparents? That's what ministry's about. Sunday school classes. I know, I'm pushing it now. Would you be willing to give up your room because another class needs it? A younger, I mean, a newer class is starting, not younger as age, but younger as in new. New class is starting, and we need that room. Would you be willing to move? Because, see, when we start having the attitudes like that, we allow God to work and move, and it's not us tapping a brake as we're moving. We're moving forward. Are we being humble enough? Because, see, when we start doing that, we act like a family. In a family, let's be honest, we go to events we don't want to go to. Every time the school sends something out and says, hey, your kid's doing this, not all those are joyous. <laughs> not every sports activity that we go to, we're going to enjoy, especially if I'm just a sibling and not the parent. But we go, why? Because we're family. We go to the award shows, we go to graduations, why? Because we're family. That's what we do. One of the biggest arguments we have in our house, point of tension. You probably have it too. You ready? What are we eating for dinner tonight? Ooh. I mean, can someone just give us a schedule? And that way we don't have to decide. We're good to go. But, I mean, it's just, hey, where do you want to go eat? I don't care. You pick something. Okay, let's go here, here, here. No, I don't like any of those options. I'm like, so you do care. <laughs> then just pick. <laughs> right? But it's like family. we got to rotate. Hey, we're going to go eat at your restaurant tonight. We're going to go eat this at our house tonight. We're going to do this. We rotate. That, why? That's what families do. It's not, I mean, if I get my way and we eat everything I want, McDonald's is going to just skyrocket through the stock market. Y'all don't, like, don't like McDonald's? Come on, man. I'm going to pray for y'all. <laughs> Trust me, I know you're praying for me on that one now too. All right? But as we go... We treat it as we're like families, and we submit to one another. As a church, we submit to one another in humility. We submit, and we're unified in humility. Let each of you not look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Because some days, it's your turn. Some days, it's your turn. Others days, it's someone else's turn. And that's great. Now, selfishly, when I say it's someone else's turn, that means it's one step closer to my turn. But when we're humble about it, everyone gets to participate. Everyone, we all go in the same direction because that is what families do. I ran across a quote as I was looking at this, and this is just kind of as it talks about the church, as it talks about the family. It was anonymous. I don't know who wrote it, but it says, coming together is a beginning Keeping together is progress. Working together is success in the Christian assembly. For as one flock we are gathered together. 
As one family, we dwell together. As one body, we are joined together. As one temple, we are framed together. As one household, we are built together. As one kingdom, we, we are to strive together. As one hierarchy, we are raised up together. Now that is a church. And that is the church of Christ that we are to be unified in. So now what? What's our response? How do we respond to a sermon like this? This isn't a sermon where it's, I'm targeting some individuals. This is just kind of a broad sweep of the church. But this is a sermon for those within the walls, not outside the walls. How do we live as a church? Are we unified in the gospel? Are we unified in loving each other? Are we unified in showing humility to one another? As we prepare our hearts for an invitation, let me ask is there something in your life that's hindering you? Is there something in your life that you just want to hold the brake on? Let go. Let God work in your life. Is there something in your life that maybe there's a relationship that's been hindered or harmed that you just need to make right? Pray about it during their invitation time. And then when you get home, work on fixing that relationship. If you haven't shown love to someone like you should, love them. If you want to put yourself above others, repent. But by all means, act like a citizen. Act like a citizen of the gospel of Christ. That's what the message is today. That's the whole reason why we come. So we can act like the children of God we're supposed to be, through sharing the gospels, through sharing love, and through being humble before one another. Okay? How's God dealing in your life? Like I said, it's been a rough week for me. Been grumbling, complaining, and then, hey, you got to preach on Sunday, and this passage comes up, and you're like, ugh. So I want you to wrestle just as I'm wrestling with it, okay? But where's God moving in your life? 